Well, good morning. We've had a couple of psalms already this summer. We had Psalm 51 and Psalm 1, both very meaningful psalms that speak to our experience and out of our relationship to God. And today I'm going to speak to one of the best known of all psalms, as Lou's already said, Psalm 23. And in particular, just four words from the third verse, which I think can challenge and encourage us. He restores my soul, or he refreshes my soul. But we'll... Uh, First of all, read the psalm, if I can uh, work out the... uh, Yep, the clicker's working. If you want to follow it in the Bible, it's on page 555. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and i will dwell in the house of the lord forever we grow up with perhaps nursery rhyme images of sheep grazing on lush green grass mary had a little lamb or maybe we think of paintings by landscape artists like Constable, or if we're a little bit more up-to-date, David Hockney. Maybe we think of a lazy summer day's picnic in the countryside with sheep grazing in the background. Is that really the picture that the psalmist wants to paint for us? Years ago, we lived in East Africa. I was doctor at a hospital just about 100 miles from the equator. Yet the countryside around was green and lush, fertile, because we were living at seven and a half thousand foot above sea level, on one edge of the Great Rift Valley. But twice each month, I would go down to visit dispensaries in the bottom of the Rift Valley. It was five thousand foot lower than where we were, just down a, a very steep, rough, unfenced little dirt track. It was a heart-stopping journey. Sheer drops of thousands of foot off the side with no, no, no fencing at all. And then when I got to the valley, the environment was completely different. In the valley floor, there was bare rock. There were scrubby, sun-baked stalks of vegetation. Dried up riverbeds. Yet even in this barren landscape children were watching over flocks of sheep 
and goats. No doubt looking much as they did in, in David's time. The sheep didn't look much like what we would recognize in England as sheep, but I suspect that the Lapworth family might have seen sheep not looking too dissimilar. Maybe Fiona over here may have seen them in, in Zambia. Uh, sheep don't have white woolly coats. And in my non-agricultural experience, the only distinction between sheep and goats which looked virtually identical was that the tails of the sheep hung down and the tails of the goats stick up. But uh, we're not talking about parables of sheep and goats today. So Each visit down to the heat, the scrubland of the valley, took me on a journey to, to David's experience of shepherding, to the parched land of ancient Israel. The Rift Valley runs up through East Africa, through Ethiopia, the Red Sea, and on to Israel and Jordan. The climate, the lifestyle of its peoples in, in the African area in particular hasn't really changed very much in 3,000 years. Indeed, about the only difference you might find would be that the shepherds, still wrapped just in a, in, in a bare blanket, might have a mobile phone hidden underneath it. For David... The life of a shepherd wasn't one of pastoral tranquility. It was one of hardship. It was one of violence. You remember when David went to King Saul and said, I'm ready to fight this Philistine. Saul said, who are you to to fight this giant of a soldier? You're just a shepherd boy. He said, I've had to fight lions. I've had to fight off bears who would take my sheep different sort of experience of shepherding to what we might picture with one man and his dog the picture was not one of England's green and pleasant land not one of woolly sheep contentedly munching on lush grass the picture of a shepherd leading his sheep from a dusty rock-hewn hillside with scrubby vegetation and weeds into green pastures, clear waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. It isn't just poetic language. It's a picture of transformation. Transformation is... Perhaps a description of what God wants to do in our lives. Do not be conformed to this world, Paul writes to the church in Rome, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The Canadian author Ron Sider wrote a book about ten years ago called The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience. And he gave the book the subtitle, Why Are Christians Living Just Like the Rest of the World? Why are Christians living just like the rest of the world? Why? It's a challenge as to the ease with which we adopt prevailing cultural norms and values. 
How have we so readily accepted the secular world's values regarding marriage and divorce, homosexuality, abortion, wealth, poverty? Why do we see immigration as a problem to fear rather than an opportunity to show and share the love of Christ? American composer-conductor Leonard Bernstein wrote a piece, an opera called Candide. It's a setting of a play by the French writer Voltaire. And in his setting of Candide, Bernstein inserted a, a particular song sung by, uh, in, the, in the opera, a South American uh, woman, old woman, to the tune of a tango, and she sings, Why uh, I am so easily assimilated. And Bernstein himself was writing from his experience as the son of an immigrant to the United States, a Polish Jew. But why am I so easily assimilated? Is that a danger for us to be easily assimilated? What does it mean to be a Christian in 21st century Britain? What a contrast with David who writes, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. If the Lord is my shepherd, I don't need to be assimilated I know that his way is best Psalm 23 is all about what God is doing in my life if we look at it again he makes me lie down in other words he gives me rest he leads me again in verse 2 he refreshes my soul Verse 3. He guides me. Verse 3. He comforts me. Verse 4. He prepares a table for me. Verse 5. He blesses me. Verse 5. Just in this short psalm, six verses in all, we read these seven things that God is doing in my life, in your life. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He refreshes me. He guides me. He comforts me. He prepares a table for me. He blesses me. And what is my response in consequence? I lack nothing. We testify to that, that rather than the world's ever insatiable Desire for more and more and more. As a Christian we can say, I lack nothing. I will fear no evil. We live in times when terrorism is in the media regularly. Can we say, I will fear no evil. And ultimately, I will live in the house of the Lord forever. But as I said, I want us to, this morning, focus on just these four words. He restores my soul. What's the state of your soul? Do you feel stuck in a rut? Are you growing spiritually? 
Do you need to be refreshed? Take time to think about this picture of God. Not the God who keeps account and who punishes. Not the God who condemns. But the God who takes my damaged, bruised, wounded soul. And leads me to streams of living water. Like the Samaritan finding a poor man by the roadside. Robbed and beaten. Cleansed his wounds. Put him on his donkey. Took him to an inn. Paid for him to be cared for. What an image of how God treats us. The God who delights to affirm that we are precious to him. He refreshes my soul. We're going to just take a a break and sing a couple of songs. And then uh, we'll unpack that a little bit more. So to focus on verse 3 and these words in particular. He refreshes my soul. He restores my soul. The Hebrew word translated in most versions restore in the NIV says refresh. And that encompasses just one small dimension, one small part of God's purposes for us here. Some may long for a cup of tea after a long journey or a hard day's work. Some might long for something a little bit stronger, I don't know. Some might feel refreshed after a good night's sleep or a good holiday. In this sense, refresh means to revive, to recharge one's batteries. There are many tired people in the church in Britain. Many Indeed, have given up on church altogether. You won't find them in church on a Sunday. Not that they've stopped believing in God. Not that they've stopped believing in Jesus as Savior. But they find that the styles of worship, the long sermons or theological differences pass them by. They feel confused, left out, uninvolved. Today's church may seem to have little to offer to the elderly, the bereaved, the hurting, those who need space, quietness, to listen to that still, small voice of calm. But other churches may have little to offer to families, to children, to teens and twenties. He refreshes my soul it's not the church we find as we come together in fellowship the Lord's presence refreshing uplifting us pointing us to him but it's not the church that refreshes our soul it's God and it's Christ he refreshes my soul God refreshes the broken soul, the bruised, scarred by life's traumas. God refreshes the weary soul, 
run out of resources, nothing left. If that describes perhaps where you're at, then God wants to refresh your soul today. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Even amidst the routine of daily life, whether at home, at work, or in leisure time, at times when it seems that nothing special is happening, at just such times, he refreshes my soul. We don't have to work at it. It's not what can I do to know more of God's blessing in my life. It's what God delights to do in me, in you. He refreshes my soul. He wants to refresh your soul. There's a second meaning which is that he restores or makes my soul like new. Consider what it means to restore something. To take something that was whole, was perfect, just as it came from the maker, from the creator. Perhaps it's an old painting, perhaps some antique furniture, a beautiful piece of pottery, but now it's it's damaged. It shows signs of, I believe they call it in this trade, distress. Wear and tear from everyday use. Then making it like new. Many of you will remember with affection John Gilbertson, who was an elder in the church here until his death about eight or nine years ago. What you might not know is that John had a Morris 10, a pre-war Morris 10, which he kept in his garage. It wasn't the most glamorous of pre-war cars. It wasn't a Rolls-Royce or a Bentley. But it had special associations for him. His ambition was to restore it to its original condition. It would never take its place at Bewley in, in the Motor Museum, but it was his pride and joy. What does a restoration project say about the object to be restored? It's probably seen better days. It's a bit shabby. It doesn't look too much to anybody else but to the restorer's eyes. He sees something with potential, something that can be beautiful, something that would be a joy to own, something that others will admire when he's finished his work of restoration. What an image of God dealing with you and me. Created to be whole. Created to be in a perfect relationship with him. But we are all damaged goods. We all have scars and bruises, signs of wear and tear. We've seen better days. 
But despite everything, God says, when I look at you, I see something really valuable. Something beautiful. Something precious. Unfortunately, the old Morris sat in John's garage until the day he died. He didn't ever get round to restoring it. And our hopes and best intentions often come to nothing. We've got other priorities, other calls upon our time. But God doesn't have other priorities. He's never too busy for us. God is the master restorer. He makes me like new again. We don't have to live with the wear and tear. The mistakes we've made in our lives. He restores my soul. My God is the God who delights to rebuild lives. To take what I've messed up. Restore me to his original purpose for me. That I should be like Christ. In my thoughts and actions. My relationships. My words and deeds. He restores my soul. And then the third meaning of the word restore that I want just to briefly look at this morning is he restores me to himself. You may remember that that one of those editions of that famous painting by Edvard Munch, The Scream, was stolen from the art gallery in Norway where it was uh, the, the centerpiece. And then years later, it was recovered and restored to the museum. He restores me to my rightful owner. He restores my soul. He restores me to himself. St. Augustine wrote, you've made me for yourself. And our hearts are restless till we find our rest in thee. And writing to the churches in Revelation, John writes, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Think about it. You were created for God's pleasure. We're not created, as the world might say, for our own pleasure but created for God's pleasure. What does that say about our value in God's eyes? Someone has said the paradox is that I'm less important than I thought, but worth far more than I would have dared to hope. I'm less important than I thought, but worth far more than I would have dared to hope. He restores my soul. He doesn't just refresh my soul. He doesn't even just make my soul like new. But he restores me to himself. Praise my soul, the King of heaven. To his feet thy tribute bring. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like thee his praise should sing. My life no longer lacks value because... God restores my soul. He restores me to
to himself. Praise God. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. After you have suffered a little while. Will himself restore you. And make you strong. Firm and steadfast. To him be the power for ever and ever. Amen.